You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. And after um, almost a year now being in the book of Colossians, we are going to make it into the last chapter this morning. So we are moving slowly. Before we get to Colossians 3, uh, we'll be in 22 through 4.1, what Taryn just read for us. I want to offer uh, an update on, on kind of what the fall is going to look like for Citizens Church, or at least what we're planning towards uh, as a staff and as elders right now. So uh, if you're in the room and then those of you watching online, just want to offer an update uh, for you. We sent out a survey uh, this last week, and uh, thank you to those of you who filled that out. If you didn't get a chance to, it should be in your inbox right now. If not, let us know, and we'll get that survey to you. But really, just wanting to, to hear from you as we are thinking and, and planning. And so from the, the results of that survey, and then also just from where we were already kind of heading as elders and as a staff, uh, we are looking to uh, move, take our next step towards reopening on September 13th. And here's what we uh, plan for that to look like. What we hope that looks like uh, is on September 13th, adding back our 9 a.m. service, if not sooner than that. Yeah, all right. Some diehard 9 a.m. here. Um, it, church, anyway. So uh, we'll add back our 9 a.m. service, and then we will uh, reopen at a very limited capacity. We will reopen kids ministry at that 9 a.m. service. So preschool and elementary. Uh, And so that's our plan. Now, obviously, I don't have to tell you this. There's a lot about the world that we don't control uh, that we can't foresee. That's right now as it stands, the best that we've got to try to move forward uh, faithfully uh, towards uh, being a church and trying to gather as a church in what are strange and unprecedented times. So that's the news. That's a bit of the update. Now, now with that, there is an ask. Many of our uh, volunteers, many of those who serve in our next-gen ministry are unable to serve for one reason or another because of all that's going on in the world right now. For many, uh, they're not comfortable, or for many, it's unsafe for them uh, to serve. And so we are in need to be able to pull that off. I, I need you to hear this. To be able to reopen kids' ministry at any capacity, we are in need of volunteers. We are in need of those uh, who can serve in preschool and in elementary ministry. And without it, we just simply won't be able to, to offer that ministry. So if you are are available, or if you are curious, or if you are interested, please email Melissa, Melissa at citizenschurch.com, and she can answer any and every question for you about kids ministry or really about anything else. She's brilliant. So uh, email her. And then second, one of the things that we asked on that survey was we just asked, how can we pray for you? And we had hundreds, I mean hundreds of prayer requests Uh, come in. And so I've been reading through those. I've been praying through those. Our elders and staff are going to be responding uh, to those this week. Uh, But one of the things that I saw, there were a couple of threads that I saw in those prayer requests. And maybe the most common of those threads was, I just need endurance. Uh, I need God to sustain in what is an incredibly difficult season of life. Uh, For many, that was attached to trying to gear up to figure out how school's even going to work for our family. For many, that's uh, how to navigate life, having lost a job or kind of on the cusp of maybe losing a job. And so we just need God to sustain us. We need, we need peace. And so in that, this isn't the sermon, uh, but just knowing that that's been on my heart for you this week, as I've come across those prayers, I have prayed Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 
for you. And I just want to read that over us and then spend some time praying and then, and then move to our service. Here's what Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And I know that what Citizens Church is filled with right now is filled with men and women, uh, people who love you, God, and who find themselves uh, in need of patience, in need of endurance, who find themselves weary from a trying, a season of being sifted, a season of being refined in a number of different ways, God. Living in a world that is uh, full of increasing instability and increasing division and conflict. And we are the people, God, who fix our eyes on Jesus. We are the people who have our eyes fixed on you, Lord, the author and perfecter of our faith. And you are seated at the right hand of the throne of God, eager now to offer to us, your brothers and sisters, endurance, and to offer to us peace, and to remind us of your promises that you are with us and you will never leave us. So I pray that that short word, God, would go out on weary hearts uh, and offer even just a small flash of hope or just a small taste of rest uh, and, and what are very difficult for so many, what are very difficult times. We love you. We lean on you. We need you. So we pray. Amen. Colossians 3. Verses 22 through 4.1, there is so much to be said about this passage. We're not going to have time to say it all. So what I want to do uh, is I want to offer to you uh, right at the very beginning, I just want to offer to you a summary statement. And what I'm hoping is true about this summary statement is that this statement holds everything that, that we say together over the next 30 to 35 minutes. And so here's, here's the statement. Jesus is Lord over all of our days and over all of our desires. What, if you were to distill everything in this passage down to a statement, I think what's faithful to say about it is that Jesus is Lord over all of our days and over all of our desires. When I was in my early 20s, I went to counseling for the first time, uh, with biblical counseling, and I went because of a combination of uh, sin struggles in my life. I went because of uh, confusion in my life, maybe some unprocessed hurt from my past. And, and so it's my first time to sit in a counselor's office. Now, I'm a, uh, by the way, I'm a big fan of biblical counseling. I know for many, counseling has a stigma attached to it that's undeserved. Like uh, it's only for those who've done something crazy or, or counseling is, is only for those who have been through something horrific. And it's just, it's just not true. Like for everyone, life is hard. Jesus is good. Our hearts are complicated. Our past informs our present in ways that are hard times some for, sometimes hard for us to be able to figure out. And biblical counseling just helps people navigate through all that. At the very least, what we could agree on is after the last five months of life, all of us could probably use some counseling, right? So I'm in my early 20s. I've got one child, uh, early married, and I go to counseling. In the first session, I just talk and talk and talk. I don't even remember what I said, but after I got done talking, the counselor uh, listened and then was quiet for a really long time, like a really long pause after I finished talking, which was unhelpful, completely unhelpful. It was intimidating. 
And then he, I'll never forget it, he pulled out a piece of paper from his desk, a blank piece of paper. And uh, it was in response to something he heard that I said. He pulled out a blank piece of paper. He slid that piece of paper across his desk in front of me, handed me a pen, and he said this. He said, many Christians believe that their life with God is an agreement that they've entered into where they take a, a blank piece of paper and on one side of the piece of paper they write down uh, kind of the areas of their life that they're going to control and the things that they want God to do for them. And then on the other side of the piece of paper, uh, God writes down basically what he's going to do and what his promises are. And then you sign the bottom and then God signs the bottom. And then you guys holding up, you and God holding up to your end of the agreement is what makes the relationship work. Now, what he wasn't saying is obviously God has made promises to us and we are in covenant with God and God has said that there are things that he has done and things that he will do. He's not talking about that. He was talking about uh, the kind of relationship with God where we try to maintain control over our lives by only letting God into parts of our lives. And so he said, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to leave the paper blank. Don't write anything on it. I just want you to sign your name at the bottom and then hand it back to me. And my first thought was, is this a scam? Like, is he afraid he's not going to get paid or something? Uh, but I did it. I signed the bottom, left the whole thing blank, and slid the paper back to him. And he picked it up, and he held up the blank piece of paper with my name on the bottom of it. And he said, this is what God is looking for. It's called surrender. He said, what God is looking for are followers who offer their life to him, that sign the page, leave it blank, give it back to him, and say, fill it in however you want. I'll do whatever you ask. And that's what it means to be in relationship with God. That life of surrender, of letting God fill in the terms of the relationship however he sees fit is the way to follow him. And look, when we become believers in Jesus, when we become followers of Jesus, I need you to hear this, church, we come to him as both our Savior and our Lord. We come to him, and he, he gets our sin, and we get his forgiveness and love. That's true. But he also gets our allegiance, and we get his rule over our life. We live a life that is surrendered to him, and it's the kind of life that offers all of our life to Jesus and say, Jesus, because of who you are, because of what you've done, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. I'll live whatever kind of life you ask me to live. This passage that we're in this morning is about the lordship of Jesus. And it's about what it looks like to live a life surrendered to Jesus as Lord. There's five verses that Taryn read for us. Four of the, in those five verses, it uses the word Lord four times. Uh, in those five verses, it alludes to Jesus as Lord a total of six times through the word Master. And it is an appeal for a surrendered life. And so back to our statement, Jesus is Lord over all of our days and over all of our desires. That's what this verse, that's what this section is going to spell out for us. And so that's where we're going. And here's what we need to do. I need you to hold on to that for about 10 minutes because there is language in this passage um, and there are things that we encounter in this passage that makes questions erupt out of the passage that we just can't leave unanswered. And so this will feel like an abrupt change of subject, but it's necessary. So Jesus is Lord over all of our days and all of our desires. Let's put a comma there. And then in verse 22, here's what you see. You see bondservants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Some of you, if you have a translation other than the ESV, maybe the NASB, it says, it doesn't say bondservants, it says slaves. 
And that's what I mean when I say that there are questions that erupt out of this passage that we need to answer and that we can't leave unanswered. The Bible is about to give instructions about how slaves and masters should interact. And the letter is written to a church where there are people in the church who own, there's no other way to say it, written to a church where there are people in the church who own other people in the church. And so what you'd expect, what I expect, uh, is that there's some sort of call for abolition in this verse. Because what's missing, the glaring absence, is some sort of condemnation of the practice of slavery. Like you would expect to read, now I know that there are slaves in the church, and I know that there are uh, masters of those slaves in the church, and y'all should just stop. Abandon the practice altogether, right? It breaks the heart of God. And it doesn't say that. And so I want to answer a question, why doesn't it say that? Is God okay with slavery of any form? No. No, he's not. Okay, well then why not condemn it in these verses? And I want to just spend some time interacting with that. Not trying to take the easy way out, but just to interact with it together. And what I don't have is I don't have an airtight answer for us this morning. But what I can offer are three things that are really important for us to know that I think are going to be helpful. So three things important before we turn our attention back to Jesus being Lord of our days and our desires. One, the slavery in the Roman world is not the, sla- the same as the slavery that has marred American history. Uh, when we hear slave master, we fill in the details of what that looked like based on our country's history of slavery, which is abhorrent and evil and demonic. And the slave system of the Roman world was not like that. Uh, the slave system in the Roman world, which is the context of our passage this morning, it was different in some really important ways. It was really diverse, first of all. So for some, being a slave was indeed oppressive, but for others, it would have looked a lot more like the working relationships between an employer and employee that we have now, maybe minus an HR department, right? It took on many different forms in the Roman Empire. Here's how it was different. It was not about race. It didn't fall along the lines of race. Uh, It was not looking at a race of people and believing about them that they are intrinsically inferior the way slavery in America did. So the slavery in America was built on, I have a right to own you because you have no rights because you are different than I am and you belong to this class of people that is inferior to me. And and slavery in the Roman world didn't fall along those lines. It was political. It had to do more with Roman citizenship or not Roman citizenship. It was socioeconomic class. It was not race-dominant or race-driven. It didn't have the same kind of racial prejudice that slavery in America did. Also, it offered, this is really important, it offered cultural and economic mobility for people. So in in the first century, uh, the slave was not the lowest class of society. They weren't on the lowest rung in society. The one who was on the lowest rung was called the day laborer. And they were someone who didn't know where their next paycheck was coming from. They were someone that was on the brink of starvation. They didn't know where their next meal was coming from. Uh, And so often what would happen is the people who were at the lowest rung, they would indenture themselves into slavery they would sign a legal agreement with a wealthy person and come under their uh, household and work for them as a way to get out of a really bad situation, uh, as a way to to provide economic stability for them. So many were educated, um, and, and for many of them, it was voluntary, and it was a way for them to stay alive. And then also for many, it wasn't permanent. So the best way to make this point is you're familiar with the term redemption, right? 
Because that's a, that's a gospel term. It's a term that Paul uses to talk about what's happened between us and God through Jesus. Well, redemption is a word that Paul lifted out of the economy of slavery in the, in the first century Roman world. And what would happen is, is if you were a slave and maybe you had a wealthy family member, or if you were a slave and you could save up your own money, you could purchase your freedom. And it was called redemption. You could be redeemed or you could redeem yourself. So all that to say, what Paul is talking about here, the circumstance of slavery in the Roman world is different. It didn't mean it was right, and it didn't mean it wasn't without any qualities, but it was different. And those differences, while they don't solve all of our problems, those differences do matter. Second, and much more importantly, the whole counsel of Scripture, the whole counsel of God's infallible word upholds the dignity of humans and abhors the oppression of humans. The major storyline in the Old Testament is what? The Exodus. And it's a people rescued from slavery, a God who would not tolerate the racist, oppressive, violent slavery in Egypt and literally moved heaven and earth to come in swift judgment and sure rescue of his people. That's in our Bibles. The very heart of the law, according to Jesus, is love for neighbor. And then he illustrates love for neighbor by telling a story about a man who helped a man that was racially, politically, socioeconomically different than he was. You have Jesus saying things... uh, like the, the golden rule, treat others the way you would be treated, the Ten Commandments, the very life of Christ. You have to ignore all of that to look at a verse like this, which is silent in some really glaring ways, but you have to look at all of that and say that because there's not an explicit condemnation of slavery to then conclude that God is okay with it. And he's not. But here's our reality. That's what so many have done in history. Some in history have looked at passages like these in the New Testament and passages you can find in the Old Testament about slaves in ancient Israel. And they've said, see, the Bible is okay with slavery. It condones it. So that's pastors in the South in the 1800s looking at the demonic, evil, abhorrent enslavement of black people and saying, God approves. Could not be more wrong. And there is not a stain on the church in America that rivals the stain of men who look like me and who have been entrusted to rightly explain God's word like me and then have used God's word to silence the cry for justice and support the dehumanizing, violent oppression of people who bear the image of God and have every right to life and freedom as anyone else. Lord, help us. We are still haunted by those sins of the past. In all the disagreement in division church, and I know that there is much related to the current racial unrest, but surely... Surely, we can at the very least lament how different things would be today had the church then, and by the church then, I mean the white church then, had they done what was right, had the church then honored the image of God, had white preachers and white Christians not look to God's word to try to find a loophole that would ease their conscience and cushion their pockets, but would see in the very first page of the Bible in the image of God he made them. Every single person made with intrinsic dignity, value, and worth because they reflect the image of their God and their creator. You see, passages like this one that we're in this morning, they maybe are missing what we would expect to find but these passages belong to a Bible that is replete. 
They belong to a Bible that is replete with a picture of a just God who desires that his people do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before him. And it has been, it has been the word of God wielded rightly by the people of God that has stood courageously. And it's been the the people of God handling the word of God rightly that has condemned prophetically the oppression of people. There are countless examples of that in history and there are examples of that right now in the present. There are more people enslaved around the world right now than at any point in human history. Globally, slavery is at an all-time high. Who is doing something about it? Christians. The largest abolition movement in the world right now is led by an organization called IJM. We support IJM. We are helping IJM rescue children from injustice in Guatemala. And IJM is rescuing slaves around the world like nobody else around the world is. Do you know why? Because they're led by the Word of God. Their greatest weapon against slavery is the Word of God that represents the heart of God for the vulnerable and for the oppressed. God's Word upholds the dignity of all humans and abhors the oppression of any human. That is true. Last thing we need to know, and we'll go back to our text. In this very church, I am just so fascinated by this. You don't have to be, but I am. I'm somewhat of a Bible nerd. Uh, There is a story in this church that you find in your Bible about how the gospel subverts and transforms the slave-master relationship. And it transforms the slave-master relationship into a relationship of mutual love. There's a guy who lives in Colossae. There's a guy who um, goes to this church. The letter we're, we're reading is written to them and is in the room when this letter is read. You know what his name is? Philemon. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Well, it should. Philemon is a book of the Bible. It's one of those few books of the Bible that only has one chapter, and we all love that because you can read it in like five minutes or less and then tell your friends, I read a whole book of the Bible today. It's really nice if that's what you're into. I don't know if that's the thing. The letter to to Colossae and the letter to Philemon, they would have been delivered to the church at the same time by the same person, and they likely would have been read to the church together one right after the other. Philemon was a Christian. He was a wealthy man. He was a master. He owned slaves. The letter to him is about a guy named Onesimus, who was one of his slaves, who took a bunch of his money and ran away. And here's what happened. Onesimus, as a runaway slave, meets Paul. Paul leads him to Jesus. While that happens, Philemon is in Colossae. The gospel comes to Colossae, and Philemon meets Jesus. And so now they are both followers of Jesus. They both love Jesus. And Paul writes a letter to talk about how they're following Jesus is to change their relationship. It's in your Bible. It's called Philemon. It says, receive him back into your house. Forgive him. And verse 16 of Philemon says this, receive him no longer as a slave, but better than that, receive him as a brother. The power of the gospel has transformed their relationship from slave master to brothers in Christ, forever brothers in Christ. Having said all that, Having said all that, we return to our passage. And in doing so, remember, this was helpful for me to think through, that he is writing, the scope of why he's writing this section is to help them know what following Jesus looks like. Uh, He has answered that for them as husbands and wives and as parents and as children, and now he wants to answer that for them in their job, their day-to-day role in the economy that they live in that he and God disagrees with, but it's still their reality. So right now, some of them are slaves, others are masters. That's not changing today or tomorrow in his attention. Hear me carefully, hear me carefully. His attention right now is not on the system that they belong to. 
but on their hearts and what it looks like for those to belong completely to Jesus. And so he's going to tell them, a life surrendered to Jesus means that Jesus is Lord of all of your days and all of your desires. Read with me, Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1. Don't get nervous. I know we're 25 minutes in. We're going to go quickly. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Hear this, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Remember those two words. We'll come back to them but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Jesus, Lord over all their days and Lord over all of their desires. Lord over all of our days and Lord over all of our desires. So the first point that Jesus is Lord over their days is a bit subconscious, right? These verses here close out a section on what it means for, G- for you to follow Jesus in the roles that you have, right? And so it said marriage. Uh, and, and when he gets to this about their work, about their working relationships, he's covered all of their life meaning he's covered their whole week. He's covered every arena of their life. It's simple, but it is worth repeating, and it is worth saying. The life of a Christian, friend, brother, sister, the life of a Christian is an everyday, all-of-life pursuit of Jesus. It's surrender. It is sign my name, and Lord Jesus, you fill in the rest however it pleases you. It's important for every Christian to hear and to hear often, but it is especially important for us, friends, to hear because we live in a part of the world where Christianity still has a cultural component to it. And I know that that's changing, and maybe we'll see the end of that in my lifetime because of the dramatic social shifts and the dramatic political shifts. And I know some of you are even experiencing that shift in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods. Uh, and, And I don't know. Look, I'm a preacher. I'm not a prophet. But what is true right now is that Collin County... North Texas, in the South, people attend, participate, affiliate with Christianity for all different kinds of reasons, all different kinds of reasons. It is still commonplace in some ways, right? So some grew up in it, and they attend for nostalgic reasons, right? For some, it's kind of what you do. Uh, For some, maybe it feels expected because of, of, of a group that you belong to. I remember meeting a guy who wasn't a Christian, attended church really faithfully because his boss was a Christian, and he thought it would help him get a promotion one day. I'm not saying it's not shrewd. I'm just saying that was his reason for attending church, right? Some attend because the Lord saved you, is changing you. You love the Lord. You understand the value and the importance and the command to participate with the family of faith. For others, maybe there's some level of belief in God and and you have needs in your life and you believe that maybe God is the one who can meet those needs, right? In our part of the world, that's our reality, Other parts of the country, other parts of the world, there's not a cultural component to church-going Christianity. It's already on the fringes, and that presents a different set of problems. Maybe that, that means heightened persecution, but less pretense and less pretending about why the people at church are at church. Our bag, our bag is a mixed one. It's a, it's a mixture of all different kinds of, of motivations. It's a mixture of all different kinds of desires. Even now in the room, watching online, listening later this week, there's a myriad of reasons that people in our part of the world attend and tune in and participate. And that presents a danger, a unique danger. 
when Christianity is cultural, one of the greatest threats to the Christian is a compartmentalized life. When Christianity is cultural, one of the greatest threats to the Christian is a compartmentalized life. The surrendered life that Jesus demands gives way to the divided life where Jesus and my relationship with Jesus is relegated to a day of the week, often relegated to a day of the week. And so Sunday is the God day at least once to to three times a month maybe. Monday through Friday is for work and school. Friday, Saturday into Sunday is leisure. And what's missing from Sunday to Sunday for so many, what's missing is pursuit of God. What's missing is time with Jesus. What's missing is conversation with God. Uh, Thought towards how the lordship of Jesus informs my work. And thought towards how the lordship of Jesus informs my relationships and how it informs my Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And that leads to a divided life because, because in between Sundays, sermons are preached. Not Christian ones, but in between Sundays, sermons are preached. Voices all around you, all around you are telling you what life is about and telling you who to follow and telling you what matters and telling you what you should care about and telling you what you need to truly live and telling you what's wrong with all of these people out here. And would you hear me? Everyone is a disciple. Everyone. And most of the voices around us that fill our days are discipling us towards something, and it's not Jesus. Everyone's a disciple. The question is, who are you following? And in between Sundays, the voices are not. The the chorus of voices don't amount to Jesus is the answer. The chorus of voices are not amounting to you should live a life surrendered to Jesus. I heard a pastor say one of the great challenges to the church in our current climate is that Christians are discipled by their churches for an hour and a half every week. Some more, some less. But the rest of the week, they're discipled by CNN and Fox News and Instagram and Twitter and advertising and Netflix and Hollywood. Look, I'm not a TV is the devil guy. I'm not. Uh, I have an iPhone. I'm on social media. Don't follow me unless you love pictures from a dad who thinks his kids are the best thing on the Internet, right? That's what you'll get. All of that has its place. All of that has its place. What I'm concerned about is the, especially now, and we'll talk more about this next week, what I'm concerned about especially now is the consumption of news and the consumption of story and the consumption of values that are not filtered through a knowledge of God's word and that are not filtered through a relationship, a daily pursuit of relationship with Jesus. And whether we know it or not, all of that consuming of different stories and different news and different values and different opinions, it is shaping us. It is discipling us in a way that a few songs and a 40-minute sermon once a week aren't going to undo. What we see here in these verses, we see all over the New Testament, Christianity is a daily relationship with Jesus our Lord. And and if we are going to be in this season, if we're going to be in the next season, whatever's happening in the world, if we're going to be what God wants us to be as a church, we are going to have to remember that. And for some of us, we're going to have to recover that. For all the talk of the way that the world is changing and all the uncertainty of what's to come and all of the uncertainty of what's happening in the world and maybe as Christians the uncertainty about what's happening to our freedoms or what's going to happen to us. The greatest threat to the church is not the enemies around but the idols within. I'll say it till I hear an amen. The greatest threat to the church is not the enemies around, it's the idols within. The idol of comfort that has lulled the church to sleep on the mission of God. 
and has filled the heart of the Christian with a spiritual apathy towards the things of the Lord. And then the idol of individualism that, that allows us to be passionate about our politics, the idol of individualism that lets us be passionate about the controversy of the day or passionate about uh, what we have or passionate about what we want, but noncommittal and compartmentalized when it comes to Jesus. More than we need anything in this moment, church. More than we need anything in this moment in time, we need the people of God to recover a spirit-filled, courageous love for Jesus and love for neighbor that is asking every day, what will be different about my day because I'm a Christian? How will my day change? How will the evidence of my love for the Lord be on display in my life because he's Lord over all of my days? More on that next week. He's also Lord, according to this passage, over all of our desires What these verses go after is not just what you do, but these verses go after why you do what you do. Maybe the most challenging takeaway from this passage is that Jesus being Lord of your life demands that he be the why of your life. Here he says, do your work, but don't just do it, do it for this reason. Make this the why behind your work. If someone were to stop you at any point in your day and ask you, why are you doing what you're doing? Your answer should be, I'm doing this for Jesus. He says, not for eye service. Here's, here's just, just lift this right out of the passage. Not for eye service, not as people pleasers, not for men, but with sincerity, fearing the Lord for the Lord. He doesn't just care, Christian, about the desires in our hearts that are explicitly sinful, like don't covet or don't lust. It goes deeper than that. Think about what he's asking for. He wants to be the why behind everything you do, and that's so invasive. It's incredibly invasive. Why I spend the money I spend, why I work the job I work, why I make the decisions I make, why I get up in the morning, why you're here right now, why you're watching online right now for Jesus. That's total surrender. And what I love about this passage is it's going to acknowledge something. It's going to acknowledge that that's not natural. It's not natural that we do what we do for Jesus. What's natural is that we do what we do to be seen by others for the approval of others. It's eye service and it's people pleasing, meaning the natural bent of the heart is in my work, in my home, in my friend group. I do what I do to impress others or I do what I do to keep others happy. I do what I do because I feel like my identity is tied to what others think about me. I am looking for approval in the eyes of those around me, and so maybe I work the way that I work, or I post what I post, or I dress how I dress, or I talk how I talk. Maybe I'm even here right now because I'm trying to please someone. I'm trying to get validation from someone in my life, and there's an interesting comment in this passage. I'd never seen it before. It's a commentary on the life of the people pleaser. And it says that kind of life is insincere. Meaning, it's an insincere heart. The people pleaser, the way that they act is not really who they are. It doesn't come from a whole heart or a sincere heart. So, here's why. People pleasers only have to work to please people when the people they want to please are around. And so it's like a mirror, right? The mirror is a reflection of whoever's in front of it. So some of us only know how to act and only know how to think when someone we're trying to please is in the room. And so the why behind what we do is connected to someone's opinion of us, or the why behind what we do is connected to the way we hope we're perceived by others, right? And so who you are, 
who I am when there's no one around, right? The question that haunts is, who are you when there's no one in your life whose approval you're vying for? That's why for the people pleaser, being alone is so scary. Because then we're faced with ourselves, and that's the one person in the world we can't get away from, but also are the least familiar with. Because we spend so much time learning what will make others happy and little attention to our own hearts and pay little attention to our own hearts. So there's a reaction to this that surrounds us, that you, you've heard this, you hear it every day. Many respond to that and say, well, yeah, that's why you don't live for other people's approval. You live for who? Yourself. You live for yourself. You do what you feel is right. You do what pleases you. On Friday mornings, the rollers go get donuts. Every Friday morning, we go get donuts. Our favorite place is Shipley's. Actually, our favorite place is a place called Max's Donuts in Allen. It's been around forever. Yeah, okay. Testify. Um, but it's a little bit far from us, and when we go there, I have no self-control, so it doesn't go well. Uh, we got donuts on Friday. Asher likes strawberry donuts with sprinkles, and he said, Dad, how come you never get strawberry? And I said, well, because I don't like it. And he said, well, why don't you like it? I said, well, I don't, I don't think fruit and donuts mix. I just think they belong to two completely different categories. A strawberry donut feels like a donut that's trying to pretend to be healthy, and it just feels like a lie, right? Which is more than what he was asking for, obviously. And so I prefer glazed, or I like chocolate. And he was quiet for a minute, and he said, you do you, bro. <laughs> and I thought, I don't think I've ever said that to him. I don't think we talk like that in our house, right? And so I'm not sure where he heard that, right? But it did not surprise me at all that he said it. It didn't surprise me at all that he said it because it's the mantra of the day. It's everywhere. Be true to yourself. You do you. Do what you feel. Live your life. And, and I guess it's harmless when you're talking about donuts, right? But when that becomes the operating truth over why I do all that I do, it's really empty. It's a really destructive way to live. It's the lie of emotional reasoning that I do what I do based on how I feel, and my feelings give me permission to do whatever I want to do, right? And look, I think, hear me, I think it's important to be honest about how we feel. I think it's important not to suppress how we feel, but there is a huge difference. There is a huge difference between being honest about our feelings and then not being able to be challenged in our feelings. Like, should we feel what we feel? Uh, what do those feelings mean about what we believe about ourselves and about others and about God? And is there any room for correction? And should they be the reality by which we live by? Should those things, should my own desires, should they be the driving force behind why we do what we do? No. Ask anyone over 30, have you ever listened to your feelings and made a huge mess? Yes. Right? Absolutely. So the reaction to people-pleasing is not to live for self. The reaction from this passage is to live for Jesus. So here's the difference. People-pleasing, the guiding question behind our desires is, what do they want? What do the people around me want? Living for myself, the guiding question is, what do I want? Living for Jesus, the guiding question is, what does my Lord want? What honors Jesus? And it is difficult but it is the only way to live. Here's why. If you live for others, you will always be after approval, either trying to earn approval you don't have or trying not to lose the approval that you do, and it's exhausting. If you live for yourself, you will crumble under the weight of not being God. You'll crumble under the weight of not having control, and you'll crumble under the confusion of not knowing which version of yourself to listen to because the heart is fickle and the feelings are mixed and the desires are mixed. 
but to live for Jesus, to do all that we do for him, is to live from approval we already have. The relationship with Jesus, when we say everything I do is for you, the relationship is never on the line. He didn't start loving you because you made all the right decisions. He didn't start loving you because you were able to perform. So living for him means that I can live my life for Jesus. I can do what he requires of me. And I can offer my life to someone who has already filled my life with grace and who has already shown me compassion and who's not going to judge me in my weaknesses, is not going to withhold some of his love until I become more of what he wants. No, I'm living for the one who saved me as I was and for the one who loves me as I am and in every Every day lavishes my life with new mercies that come straight from his heart. So to the slaves in this church, he is saying, you can offer your work to the Lord because according to Philippians 2, he became a slave for all of us. Uh, He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, it said, but he humbled himself, taking on the form of a slave, the exact same word, and being found in that form, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So as you work, do your work for the one who first worked for your salvation. Do your work. Do all of your life, all that you do for the one who first laid down his life for you so that you might have freedom and joy who rescued you from death and brought you into life. Why? Answer this question and we'll be done. Because he's worth it. Because he's worth it. He talks about an inheritance in this passage. And, and the inheritance, yes, means eternal life, the new heaven, the new earth. And there are rewards in that life. But the testament of Scripture is that the reward of the inheritance is Jesus. It's life with him. Jesus is the prize of Christianity. God himself is the very thing we get. Not heaven, not an easy life. David says in Psalm 27, one thing I ask, one thing I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze upon his beauty. In John 6, hundreds of disciples leave Jesus and you've got only a few left behind and Jesus asks them, do you want to leave too? And Peter says, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, Peter says, where would we go? We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You have the words of life. Jesus, to have you is to have all that we need. If we were to leave you, we would be lost. Where would we go? But to get you, listen, at the very core, that is the heart of the surrendered life. At the very core, the one who looks at Jesus, offers our life, signs our name, and says, fill it in however you want. I will do whatever you ask because... I get you. Because in return, the joy of life is life with you, Jesus. Friend, is your life surrendered to the Lord? Is Jesus the Lord over all of your days and all of your desires? Let me be fair. Here's what I've learned since counseling over a decade ago. It's a process. That act of surrender is less a one-time signing the page and giving it over to God and more of a constant act of saying, hey, I've, I've filled this in in ways I didn't know. A constant act of saying, I need to reorient my surrender back to you, Lord Jesus. But the heart of a disciple of Jesus, the heart of one who truly follows him, submits to him, surrenders to him, that is a regular practice of our life. Jesus, be Lord of my days. Be Lord of all of my desires because you and you alone are worth it. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. I thank you for your kindness to us. 
I thank you for the joy that you have brought into our lives, Lord. What a sobering reminder. What a sobering reminder, Lord Jesus, that we do not get you as Savior without surrendering to you as Lord. That the great offering to our life is grace and patience and love and the freedom to fail and not being defined by our worst moments and not being defined even by our wicked, idolatrous desires. The great gift from you is life and freedom and salvation. And then the great demand from you is that all of our life be about you. So I pray, God, that you would, at this church, among those who call citizens home, that you would unite our hearts together by filling our hearts with a desire to surrender to you. We confess one of the most powerful and simple confessions of our Christian faith, one of the most compelling creeds we have. We confess together to you now, Jesus is Lord. We love you, we trust you, we need you, and you are worthy of all that you ask for. Amen.